Hello, and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. One minister has told people not to book summer holidays. Another has warned that you could be hit with a 10-year prison sentence if you lie about where you've been on holiday. Just imagine predicting that a year ago. A new hotel quarantine system is coming into force. But is it tough enough? Will it achieve the government's aims? Or is it, in fact, too tough and also won't achieve those aims? If global Britain is looking, well, rather closed at the moment, what might it look like in a post-pandemic future? With UK scientists at four of the government's vaccines policy and a half-British company, AstraZeneca, playing a key role, might global Britain be rather nationalistic in its outlook? We'll discuss. And then we'll end the podcast by digging into some favourite IFG territory, accountability for government mistakes. More than 400,000 fingerprints, DNA, arrest and other records may have been wiped from police databases after a home office blunder. An investigation is underway, but who might be to blame and what does it tell us about how the mistake happened? Well, I've got a top-class IFG trio with me in the virtual studio today. Giles Wilkes is our senior fellow and a former advisor in number 10 in the business department. Giles, thanks for joining us. Hi there. And we've got Alex Thomas, who leads our civil service work and has also spent time as a civil servant working at the heart of government. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bronwyn. And we have again Jill Rutter, IFG senior fellow and veteran of number 10 and the Treasury. Hi again, Jill. Good morning. Let's start then by looking at a policy which is slowly taking shape, and that's the new airport quarantine plan. Matt Hancock, the health secretary, has taken charge, and he's announced that from Monday, people arriving in England from red list countries must isolate for 10 days in hotels, costing them £1,750. And whatever you do, don't lie about your recent travel history. He's also warned that you could be landed with a a maximum 10-year jail term if you do. So what is the government's new scheme trying to achieve, and is this going to work at all? Well, we've also dialed up our quarantine policy expert, IFG senior research researcher, Sarah Nixon, who joins us again from the enviable freedom of Australia. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bronwyn. Sarah, I'm going to start with you, because you put together a fantastic paper in the wake of Matt Hancock's announcement, uh, looking at the government's policy and where the gaps are. So were you impressed? Um, well, setting aside my own personal feelings about the policy, Bronwyn, I think the British public won't be impressed if they expect that it's going to keep dangerous new variants that might undermine the vaccine rollout out of the UK. Because what the government has proposed is certainly not going to do that. Their plan has so many holes in it, you could drive a truck through it. All right. So take us through some of those holes, so to speak. Where are the big holes? Yes. So, I mean, look, the biggest one to my mind the fact that, I mean, as you've just said, it's um, a potential jail term of 10 years if you lie on your incoming passenger form to try and get out of hotel quarantine by saying that you haven't been to one of the countries on the red list. I mean, setting aside the fact that many legal experts, you know, such as the former head of um, the government legal department, Jonathan Jones, have basically rubbished this idea as being entirely implausible that it will happen. But, I mean, setting that aside, you have to compare that to the fact that that incoming passenger form that I just mentioned, at the moment, all that happens to you if you don't fill out the form at all is you could be fined £500. So, I mean, it's very easy to envisage a world that someone that doesn't want to pay £1,750 to spend 10 days in an airport hotel just doesn't fill out the form at all. The government has no idea where they've come from. Um, They might be fined £500, but beyond that, they just go on their merry way. 
Um, and look, the government may well have plans to plug that gap. I'm sure that their legal experts are on it. Um, but it's just one among many holes in this plan that the government hasn't outlined how they're going to plug. And Jill, what do you make of the, the threat of this jail sentence, which is is more than um, significantly higher than, than for, uh, as lawyers have pointed out, than for many other serious crimes, including racially aggravated assault, violent disorder, possession of a firearm, attempted rape of a child and so on? Is, it, is this really going to work? Well, when you have lots of eminent lawyers saying nobody's ever going to impose that fine, it's a maximum fine, a maximum sentence. It appears to have been derived from the fact that ministers aren't taking new powers to do this. This They're using powers that exist, and this is the sentence attached to something in the Fraud Act. Interesting questions that colleagues have been raising about the relative penalties for uh, white-collar versus personal physical crime. Uh, so they seem to have just imported it from there. But when you have Jonathan Jones, who Sarah is referring to, the former head of the government legal department, saying he'll eat a face mask if anyone ever faces a 10-year sentence, then it's not clear judges will think that's at all proportionate. So it may be one of those areas where nominally it's a 10-year fine, but in practice, a 10-year sentence, but in practice it's six weeks, six months maybe. I mean, that's still a deterrent for lots of people. I mean, you know, the bit, basic message that the government is giving to people who are still in the UK is just don't go anywhere. And ministers are, of course, pointing out that it's still illegal to travel anywhere at the moment for holidays. So it's interesting because as Sarah says, they need to plug this gap that you can get away with not filling in a form. That does seem to be a rather obvious thing to do. But uh, but we do have this thing that, you know, if you, you know, they will apprehend you if you're obviously on a flight from Portugal. People this morning were saying, you know, drive over the border from Portugal into Spain and fly up from Spain, and you probably would back your chances of getting away with it. So, Alex, I mean, what do you make of uh, of uh, the government putting this policy together? Do you think, in fact, it would have been simpler to go for a, a quarantine on every country, or on people coming from every country? It, it does feel like they're doing a bit of triangulation in terms of, uh, you know, as, as we've seen happen with previous policies around lockdown and uh, economic support, that they're kind of going for the middle way. The problem, and Sarah's highlighted this in the work she's done, is they haven't has ever been that clear about what the objective is? Is it to suppress the virus uh, and the new variants? Is it to try and prevent any possibility of it coming in uh, at all? Or is it uh, just to sort of um, you know, manage the virus in a, in a different way? And I think that's led to some of the this sort of splitting the difference a, a, approach that they're taking. I mean, the, the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's Questions this week was talking about having one of the toughest regimes in the world. And Keir Starmer was saying, well, that's not the case. It seems to be neither one thing than, nor another. It's going to cause huge inconvenience for lots of people, but it's probably not going to stop the, the virus, uh, the new variants of the virus getting in, which which also seem to be here already. Um, there's also no real sense of an exit strategy. So how, how's the government going to get out of this? Is it just going to steadily uh, add or take away countries to, to the rules? Or will we get to a point where actually uh, we're not so worried about new variants because vaccines can can address them? Giles, what would you do? What would I do? Um, great question. I look, I think that we criticise this government for not um, for not learning, and this is a really good example of them learning, of arguably overreacting and going the other way. But they did not do anything like this at the beginning when we were being flooded with the virus from overseas. It was one of the major criticisms of that early disaster-strewn period, and now they're trying to make sure that there are no more mistakes, that if we do have an exit from this, it is 
um, as clean and as thorough an exit as we can possibly have, having now glimpsed what success looks like with their successful vaccination strategy. So I have slightly more sympathy, even though I, I was glancing in dismay at the Guardian stories of the Matt Hancock saying no summer holidays for you. They, they have identified that if you don't deal with the virus and have to go back into lockdown, it doesn't really matter what the summary period before the eating out to helping out was like. That's got no value if you don't manage to successfully deal with this thing. So obviously the 10 years thing is terrible and that should not happen. And the legal experts like Jill and Sarah can talk more to that. But as for the overall policy, they, that we're now in a world where new variants can get in under the door and they need to show that they did absolutely everything. I, I've got some sympathy for their broad but, approach. All right, so you might have sympathy for the tone of it. But what, what about, do you think they should then have um, uh, um, these measures applying to everyone coming in, not just from the 32, 33 uh, uh, red list countries? And that's, that's where Labour is pushing this. Oh, God. I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, arguably, you could say that they've tried to be too clever by half in the past by discriminating between areas and different tiers, countries that are in different corridors, all that sort of thing. So arguably, the most straightforward thing would be to do that, yes. Um, I, I suspect that what Labour are doing here is identifying a, a potential gap in their policy in kicking it as hard as they can it's not necessarily worked out that there should be no such thing as an overseas country we can't feel safe coming to after all i mean sarah coming back from australia where it's virtually eradicated by our standards are we 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 really going to say that that should mean a a 10-day quarantine too i think um i think their policy right now is probably quite defensible but you know if i was labor i'd be attacking them for every possible failing in case that turns out to be the failing that makes a difference. Yeah. Sarah, has there been much comment in Australia about what we're doing here? How has this gone down? I think people are a bit bemused that it's taken the UK government the best part of a year to get around to contemplating um, a hotel quarantine system and actually implementing it. I mean, the fact that there was about a three-week delay between the government saying that they were going to quarantine people and that uh, quarantine people in hotels and then Uh, you know, announcing the details. I mean, I think that raised a few eyebrows here. I mean, I don't think that that should... I mean, one question I have been asked a lot in speaking to people about this is, you know, isn't this too little too late? And I mean, what I would say is it's never too late to change the future. I mean, the past is a different question. But yeah, I mean, I think to answer your question, Bronwyn, I think overall the question people here are asking in Australia about what's going on in the UK is... Why did it take so long to, to recognise that this measure that can work to save lives and to keep parts of the economy open that wouldn't be open if you're going through this you know, lockdown process that you are at the moment? So for all the constraints, would you say that people in Australia are broadly happy with the, the control of borders that their government's brought in? Yes. Um, I, mean, I mean, in many cases with a heavy heart, but certainly opinion polling shows that the vast majority of Australians support the hotel quarantine policy. I mean, I would add that, you know, recent YouGov polling in the UK shows that a, a comprehensive hotel um, quarantine policy would be very popular in the UK as well. I mean, I, certainly within Australia, anyone that's in a sector that relies on tourists or migrants, I mean, they're doing it really tough at the moment. Also, any Australian that has family overseas or, you know, expats, you know, stranded outside Australia. I mean, that is the human cost of the quarantine policy. But I mean, I think on balance, people would see the pros and cons of this policy and decide that 
you know, saving lives and being able to keep the economy open at home by and large it is worth those sacrifices as, as great a sacrifice as they are. But that is, I mean, that is quite the cost Sarah's just been talking about, though, to Australians overseas. I was talking to my downstairs neighbours who are Australians who saying they vaguely hoping they might be able to go back by Christmas, but don't have that much confidence. My sister-in-law couldn't go to her mother's funeral in New Zealand. I mean, there are there are quite big costs for this in uh, this you know, that you don't pick up just by making travel incredibly difficult to some of these places. So, yeah, you need to put that in one side of the equation. And none of this, of course, addresses one of the real fundamental problems, which has been that our isolation policy seems so weak and poorly complied with. And since we seem to be doing quite well at spawning new variants here, it's fine to try and shut off the transmission vector from overseas. But we do need, I think, to think about whether we can make our tracing and actually enforcing isolation here and making it possible for people to comply with that more viable than we have done to date. I think that's a really big thing that you've picked up on, Jill, because it's no point keeping foreign variants out of the country if you're going to allow the virus to run rampant at home because you can have homegrown variants that are that could just as easily undermine the vaccine efforts. So, I mean, if the government does only pursue quarantine at the expense of really um, suppressing the virus at home, well, then, you know, then you would conclude it's a policy to give the impression that the act, the government is acting tough rather than it actually taking tough action. We were talking about holidays just a, a minute ago, not with any great uh, faith in taking them, but we've had uh, Grant Shapps warning that summer holidays shouldn't be booked. On the other hand, Matt Hancock says he's booked his in Cornwall. Um, Alex, I was just wondering, is, is, is this the government again getting its expectation management um, in a bit of a tangle? It just seems like a really uh, basic failure to develop a line to take. Um, I mean, as, as civil servants and special advisors would say, I mean, having ministers say these different things, it did seem like there wasn't an awareness of the consequences of that. So uh, you have uh, one minister saying, you know, we'll have a great British summer. So domestic holiday companies, people uh, rent cottages and things, immediately start to push people to, to book. And then you have uh, another minister saying something different. There's a real world consequence of not having a consistent line on this. I think it should be pretty straightforward to say at the moment, it's too early to tell. We we don't know. And this points to one of the things about, I mean, the media and the government uh, are understandably, to some extent, very focused on dates. Actually, we should be more focused on what's happening in, in the world and, and, and base our policies around how things evolve and be more, uh, you know, if we can be more comfortable with uncertainty while we're in this strange period and not obsess over the 22nd of February or the 8th of March or or other sort of uh, dates that, that take on this this significance. But people do want to know how we're going to get out of this, obviously. I mean, Jill, do you think that vaccine passports are going to be a way to making travel more accessible? Because people have really begun to focus on just how difficult travel in the um, kind of continuing era of coronavirus may, may be. I think that, I mean, I always travel with a vaccination certificate anyway, which I have for the variety of uh, inoculations I've had uh, to go to various places, including yellow fever and things like that. So I think that even if the government's reluctant to do that, you are likely to find that you have to check what the requirements are for the countries you're going to or the airlines will not let you on without some sort of proof that you will be allowed to be admitted, as we require now that they administer passport checks, visa checks and things like that. 
So even if the government's reluctant to do it, though, again, this is an area where the government seems to be sending out some slightly mixed messages. Even if the government's reluctant to do it, I think that this will come forward in a variety of forms that that you may find that. I actually think on the domestic travel, we were trying to book something at the weekend uh, before all this uh, confusion, and it was incredibly difficult to book places for August. Uh, Most of them seem to be booked up already. So I think uh, I was slightly wondering whether Grant Shapps had discovered this too and was slightly trying to generate some <laughs> cancellations so he could get in there, uh, being rather annoyed by Matt Hancock's boost posting. <laughs> so anyway, because I think a lot of people have already taken the message that if they want to get in there, they can do that. And of course, other people are offering free cancellations and things like that, which may be one of the adaptations. Yes, the travel industry has moved on quite a bit from from last year. Well, we're going to have to leave the question of, of travel there, but I think one of the points we landed on in the middle um, of, of it, it, all this doesn't make an awful lot of sense if if there isn't some way of of getting hold of outbreaks here and continuing new variants, and um, and and therefore that leads us back to the test and trace system, which I'm sure we're going to come back to in the future. Sarah, many, many thanks for joining us and well done on your comment which on, on this uh, very, uh, very subject which went everywhere this week. Thanks, Bronwyn. All right, let's turn to our second subject, Global Britain. And if Global Britain is at the moment feeling a bit like an island, what can we predict about the future? The vaccines rollout is being held up as an example of the UK getting something right in this crisis, rapid procurement, rapid rollout, experimentation with splitting doses and even mix and matching doses. Giles, would you say this is a triumph for a distinctively British approach? Well... I mean, the government has seized advantage of the fact that it feels alone and responsible for all of its own actions. So insofar as it felt that being out of the EU meant they really have to just look to themselves and how they behave. And boy, have they done a lot of learning in the last year, as I said earlier. Then, I mean, as a massive Remainer and a big fan of the cooperative methods embodied in the EU, the vaccine story is a good one for the UK. And I don't think we should step away from that. To some degree, it's a kind of mercantilist one, because it's about them grabbing advantage for the UK at the expense of other countries, because, you know, are having a stronger contract for the um, AstraZeneca vaccine means others not getting it as quickly, it seems, from the reading of it. But yeah, I do think, I wouldn't call it a global Britain success. It's a kind of seizing control kind of success and a very unique circumstance where the, the rewards and, and the objective is staggeringly clear and obvious. And that's not what most policy is going to be like. But yeah, we should give the government credit for how that has gone for them. Yeah. And we've obviously had the World Health Organization this week uh, endorsing the British approach in delaying uh, the dose, at least of the um, AstraZeneca, the Oxford vaccine, not the, the Pfizer one. Jill, though, I mean, the UK's approach, making a laboratory out of the country in a way, uh, should that be something we're concerned about? No, actually, I think that what uh, I think the UK actually has done quite well in you know, recognising that, in a sense, it is doing something vaguely experimental, setting up uh, observation to see whether it worked or not. But, you know, it's almost a, you know, creating a global public good by trying something slightly different. We know that the vaccine manufacturers did pretty standard trials of some question marks, I think, about the robustness of the um, AstraZeneca trials, which caused some of their problems with other regulators. But I actually think this was really quite a sensible thing to do, because the truth is that 
with this virus, we're all on a massive learning curve. And people doing things slightly differently is incredibly helpful in finding things out. I mean, one of the big triumphs and slightly unsung triumphs of the UK has been all the work that the UK has been doing uh, on treatments, which you could argue is another form of experimentation on people who are already ill. But without that, we wouldn't have known that some of the newly emerging treatments that have you know, reduced the mortality from COVID, the dexamethasone and things like that, were very efficacious at very low cost. So I think you know that actually that's part of our offer back to the world. And this is one of the really interesting areas, because one of the things that the government has always said it wants to do as a regulator, and one of the advantages of being freed from the EU is it'll be able to be more innovative, more nimble. And the EU is incredibly cautious. It's very, very wedded to what it calls the precautionary principle. And the UK has always said, well, actually, we want to take a more sort of science-based balance of risks approach than extreme precaution. And I think that that's actually, you know, might not sound great to say experimenting on the public, but I think that's quite a good thing to do, quite good positioning for the UK. And not experimenting isn't cost-free. There was an alternative world in which millions and millions of people didn't get their first dose of the vaccine uh, and therefore weren't protected and uh, were, were at risk. So it's a, it's, it's a balance there. I think one of the things the government's done well here is be upfront about that balance of risk. We had ministers and uh, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, explaining really clearly what the trade-off was. And I think that sort of honesty and that kind of grown-up conversation with the public worked, worked well in this instance. And Alex, you did quite a bit of work in preparing for Brexit at the heart of government before you came to join us. Um, Did this kind of agility that we're seeing now come out of planning? There was a lot of energy trying to sort of focus on what the benefits of Brexit would be. And I think probably looking back, we were we were too focused on the kind of micro rules and ability to you know, not follow specific uh, EU regulations and less focused on the kind of wider cultural uh, and almost sort of psychological impact. Because I think one of the uh, it's well established that the, the UK, had we been in the EU and remained in the EU, um, could still have have taken our own approach and played to our strengths in uh, in vaccine uh, production as we did but almost sort of psychologically I'm not sure we would have done the pressure would have been to stay with the with the pack there's something there about the kind of wider political implications of Brexit that have allowed us to be more politically uh, nimble and do things maybe we could do we could have done anyway but the pressure to prove ourselves uh, in this kind of whether it's global Britain or uh, kind of a bucket buccaneering new environment has paid off in this in this instance obviously there'll be lots of others where the EU will do will do better than we would have done Let's just ca- capture that, that point there, because I want us to br- come on to a related point. Earlier this week, I interviewed Greg Clark, the former business secretary, and he's now head of the Common Science and Technology Select Committee. And that, that was one of our IFG Live events. And I asked him if he was pleased, in hindsight, that Pfizer's attempted takeover of AstraZeneca had stalled back in 2014. Let's just hear what he said. Well, I'm I'm personally pleased that uh, AstraZeneca is... Is a, is a British company, a British-Swedish uh, company, and that has got deep roots uh, here uh, in this. Candidly, I'm very pleased that uh, it remained uh, to be here. But the, the context of the, uh, of the question is, uh, I guess, whether we should take steps to, to require that to be the case uh, in future. And that is a, uh, that's genuinely a challenging question, because the, the truth is that most of the, the organizations that are active in this endeavor are multinational. And so I think 
you're right, Bronwyn, and it does shine the spotlight uh, on that. But I don't think we should infer from this that requiring all companies simply to be resident, as it were, in one country uh, is necessarily the, the solution. I think it's a very important question. I know the Institute for Government will be uh, reflecting on the lessons for it. I'm pleased that AstraZeneca is here, but I think we need to we need to ask that question as to what the, the implications are uh, for the future. But don't let's forget that this is, going back to what we said before, very much an international endeavour. Giles, I really wanted to know what you think about this, what could be a massive issue of whether global Britain is in fact going to be very nationalistic about takeovers, about protecting British companies, AstraZeneca, of course, half British, half, half Swedish. How do you see this panning out? I think it's been brewing up for a long while and it's probably about to burst out with Brexit. We've been seeing it since, I mean, the, the big moment where this all began was the takeover of Cadbury by Kraft in 2009. And there were there was furious parliamentary select committee um, investigations into this and fury that they didn't stick with some of the promises made before the takeover. And then into that atmosphere came the Pfizer-Zeneca one, which was um, which happened when I was the special advisor to Vince Cable there. And the government, you could almost see in real time the government's neoliberal uh, confidence evaporating as the story trans um, sort of turned around from being, isn't it great that everyone loves our low corporate tax rates here and is coming here with their money to, oh my God, they're stealing one of the great R&D jewels of this country. What are we going to do? And uh, my boss, Vince Cable, saw this really quickly, that we don't want to be looking at one of the big R&D spenders in the country and um, and it whether it continues its focus on R&D in the way we want it to, being dependent on overseas ownership. Not that anyone was able to explain how you actually use these tools of control. Something being British doesn't make it easier to tell them what to do with their R&D. But nevertheless, and this was a couple of years after Pfizer had closed a very large facility in Sandwich in Kent with several thousand job losses. Um, and nowadays, it seems totally inconceivable that that would go ahead. And when we had a, a, a rerun under Theresa May, when there was some talk of... Uh, Craft Cadbury and Unilever or something like that going on, it, the, the, the kickback was even fiercer. So there's a growing political sense that overseas takeovers need to be looked at more. Greg Clark himself introduced further difficulties and um, sort of sand in the wheels under the, changing the, the way the takeover code worked with cooperation from the takeover panel. And there's now a national security investment bill going through that is going to look at more national security aspects of, of this and, and whether certain assets should just be protected full stop. So, yeah, it's definitely going to happen. Whether it's at all consistent with the idea of being global Britain is is one of the many contradictions within conservative economic philosophy that we're all on the edge of our seats to see if they ever fully resolve because we have done very well by being an open playing field for capital for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, are we going to find an alternative to that where we remain, have a protectionist angle too? I haven't seen it very well articulated yet. Jill, you've been looking at this for ages in the Treasury and, and, and since. Are you sitting on the edge of your seat? I think the really interesting thing is the emphasis on having domestic manufacturing capacity that's emerged as one of the consequences of this crisis. I mean, the fact that early on, we discovered how dependent we were on overseas supply chains for uh, PPE. The fact that now the government is making a big play 
And it was very interesting. I mean, Kate Bingham talking about the UK's need to have a very different approach to vaccine acquisition, recognising that it didn't have the purchasing clout of the US or the EU, and therefore having to take a very different sort of what she described as a venture capital approach, and recognising that that meant the UK sort of taking a more activist approach to expanding manufacturing capacity, along with procuring the vaccines. And I think it's really interesting, the emphasis that we will see on trying to build back a bit of the UK's manufacturing base, something that before we were really, our strategy before was to offer the UK as a manufacturing hub to distribute into the EU. That's something that Brexit makes much more difficult because Ketteris Paribus, if you want to supply the single market, you are better off basing yourself in the EU than in the UK, given the fragility of the trade and cooperation agreement. But I think this idea that you actually benefit very much from having domestic capacity supplying you is a sort of interesting new evolution of thought. I don't know whether Giles thinks that's that's a sort of, you know, going to be a big theme of the government's new, more activist industrial strategy. There is always an obsession with manufacturing. You remember George Osborne talking about the March of the Makers, and he wasn't the first to say this this sector is special. And it is special. It's much more internationally exposed. It's much more about driving productivity. It generates a lot of the jobs in those places that now have so much political interest and always have the outside of the southeast. So when a manufacturing concern goes down, there's far more concern than when a big shop goes down. We saw this continually under under the coalition. Um, I personally think it's so sui generis, the crises at the beginning of the pandemic period where we were scrambling for PPE. I saw that it cost 15 billion to buy the PPE. It would have cost 2.5 billion during a normal year. That obsession with making our own ventilators and so forth. These feel very sui generis and you shouldn't build your entire industrial strategy off the idea that it's really nice having all this stuff nearby. I still suspect that when the analysis is properly done, Open trading is the best way to make sure that you have a good collection of that, plus a precautionary supply of it, which we didn't seem to have at the time. There are quite a lot of clickers of this. We had Kwasi Kwarteng, the new business secretary, uh, this morning offering uh, the government's argument. He wasn't quite owning it himself for having the controversial Cumbrian coal mine and saying, well, look, if we're going to we're committed to British steel um, being made in, in Britain, then we need uh, a coal mine here. It was also an argument about transport, which we won't go into at the moment, but there was very definitely a, uh, an emphasis on our need to have a, a, a British mine. He did acknowledge uh, the mine is under review. Yeah, I, I must admit, I mean, I don't know enough about the nature of coking coal and how difficult it is to move it around the country, but I'd be very surprised if it makes a significant difference to what is now quite a small steel-making outfit in British steel, whether it comes from here or, or overseas. It, it's a globally traded commodity like many other things. And so it's a bit of a protectionist argument, like, isn't it great that we've got the jobs here that are making the coal? Because they might as well be our jobs rather than Turkish or Chinese jobs. I don't think that really stands up to very much free market analysis because those people could be working in other industries. Uh, it doesn't have, they're not the best jobs in the world. And so I think um, it, it looked very much like a justification for a policy they were worried they had to wear anyway. We'll have to see what happens to that policy. All right, let's go to our third topic, territory, which is going to sound rather familiar, a government data blunder. We've had these before, lost disks, accidental releases and so on. 
There are meant to be lots of safeguards in place to stop them, but they still seem to happen. Alex, you've been looking into this. What's gone wrong this time? Briefly, the government deleted up to 400,000 criminal uh, records. So the things like fingerprints, DNA, they uh, introduced a code to kind of work through the data and delete things that should have been deleted last autumn. And then that took effect in January and it wiped out a large tranche of this uh, data, which means that police forces, uh, when they want to access those sorts of records, won't be able to match things up as easily when they're uh, investigating uh, suspects. Um, the Home Office has said they're working carefully but uh, rapidly to restore the data loss. They think they can recover it. But in the meantime, it, it does mean that that data is not available for um, the police to, to investigate, to use in their investigations. So what safeguards failed, to put it bluntly? I mean, a lot of work has gone into digital systems and government and so on. How is it so easy to get rid of so many records? So we don't know. We just know that the wrong code was introduced or a code with an error was was introduced to this computer system. And uh, the the consequences then flowed from that. We we will find out because the government's asked uh, Lord Hogan Howe, Bernard Hogan Howe, who was the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police to look into this. So uh, we can expect to find out more about what went wrong. But you're right. After the uh, then Labour uh, government and Revenue and Customs lost a couple of discs containing all the records of families that received child benefit back in 2007. The civil service and the government put in place what what should have been pretty rigorous standards, processes, approaches to securing this sort of data. Every civil servant has to go on an annual refresher course about holding data properly. Um, There are individuals appointed in departments called sort of senior information responsible owners to to be responsible for the, the processes. Each bit of information should have a recognised asset owner who is responsible for making sure that it's looked after properly. But as you say, clearly something something went wrong in this case. Charles, this is every department's nightmare, every minister's nightmare. Is it fair to say it often seems to be the Home Office? It does often seem to be the Home Office. I don't know whether it's quite fair to blame the Home Office for that, given that they maybe just have more of this kind of thing going around and therefore more more potential landmines about to go off. It's also, I mean, I don't want to sound too sympathetic to politicians here, whoever gets popular doing that, but it's really hard for the politicians. What's your policy to stop this kind of thing going wrong? The writing of bad code that wipes away essential data. But if you were to attack it politically, you would say, look, administrative spend matters, having quality matters and capacity and resilience. And when you keep claiming spending review after spending review that we can cut admin spend because that's just bureaucrats who we don't need, eventually it will come around and bite you. I don't know whether that's got much empirical backing. After all, we remember part of Gordon Brown's downfall from very popular and capable to from the Stalin to Mr. Bean moment in 2007 was a loss of a lot of data disks on a train somewhere. Um, Now, they were quite a well-remunerated government. Mistakes happen during high-spending and low-spending times. But, yeah, I've got a little bit of sympathy for the Home Office. I didn't think I'd ever use those words because it's um, it's extremely difficult to stop anything going wrong within, within a really big and hairy department. Yeah. Jill, take us through the accountability arguments, if you will. I mean, we talk a lot about ministerial accountability, um, but is this more about civil service accountability? Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to lay something like a, a data wipe, apart from the sort of you know point Charles is making about if ministers have cut people far too far and against advice, then perhaps uh, you could hold them accountable. But I really do think this is a civil service problem, 
not a uh, not a ministerial problem, and it would be unreasonable if we held the very strict sort of you know critical down view of accountability, which would say that a minister should uh, should take the rap for this, and that Priti Patel should have resigned. Um, so I don't think that's that would be the right answer here. I think there are other issues when you might have expected ministers to resign, but not this one. What's very notable, I think, about the sort of loss of the child benefit discs was in that case. Uh, very, very notably, uh, Sir Paul Gray, who was then chairman of HMRC, a very respected uh, civil servant, did say, obviously, <laughs> I didn't tell somebody in HMRC to put these child benefit desks in the wrong envelope and send them into the ether where we couldn't find them, but I will take responsibility. And he resigned. Uh, and I think, arguably, you should have more senior officials prepared to put their hands up and say, well, actually, this is on my watch. I should go but as people say you know you have the real interesting thing is to sort of go back and learn the lessons why on earth did this go wrong why were what Alex said you know sound like pretty belt and braces protections against uh, mishandling data what on earth failed because the real thing you want to do is to prevent this happening again and a sort of atmosphere of recrimination and terror isn't usually the right atmosphere for learning useful lessons. Yeah. So, I, I, Alex, I wanted I wanted to bring you in on on on, on one thing in particular. I, I very much agree with what Jill's said, which I was uh, arguing in my annual lecture a couple of weeks ago that this isn't one that you should stick on Pretty Patel. It is it is about the officials, but which officials? I, I would love your view, Alex, of whether it's the permanent secretary or whether, given how much we've heard about the government digital service and people in charge of that, whether in fact it cuts right across departments. It's, it's, it's someone in charge of digital stuff. Yeah. So I think, I think this, this is on the home office um, because uh, ultimately it's their responsibility for managing and holding the data securely. I mean, they will have been advised by the government digital service from the centre. There'll be experts who run that profession. Um, but I think in the end, it's, you know, you need to have clear accountability as, as we've been saying. And this is, this is on the home office. But I think one of the reasons why this is, it's a specific example, but it's quite an interesting case study on the accountability question is because those responsibilities around handling data are are so specifically set out. If you are the uh, senior information owner, you, you literally sign a bit of paper saying, I am responsible for this data, these policies, um, this this approach. There is something about digging in here and it allows you to, to say uh, what went wrong and whose job was it to stop this happening. And then not necessarily, you know, sack them or uh, put them in the flames, um, but you can identify what went wrong and who did it. Equally though, I mean, Jill used the uh, HMRC Paul Gray example, there is something about seniority, seniority of ministers uh, defending this to the public, but also seniority of officials. And there are moments when something is is just, um, you know, something's gone so wrong, either with the culture of a a department or an error is is so significant, like with the child benefit discs, that the right thing to do is is to fall on your sword. And that's, that's part of the price of being at the top. And can enough safeguards ever be put in place from what you're saying, a lot of attention has been given to safeguards and what you're supposed to do with data? You can't eliminate all error. Mistakes will happen. Things will go wrong. Uh, I think the government uh, uh, has has done just about as much as it can in terms of sort of overall uh, sort of responsibilities and processes in the data world. I am surprised, though, that a bit of code could just be introduced and wasn't sort of tested first or uh, or uh, you know pause before the actual final delete button is uh, is 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 pressed. So uh, I'm sure there are lessons to learn around the kind of micro level of of checks and uh, pause 
pauses and cooling off periods before um, before such significant data is uh, is is erased. Um, but you can't you can't eliminate all error. Can I just say one thing? I do think uh, one of the things I thought that was notable about Windrush was that Amber Rudd ended up resigning almost on a technicality in her minister's reflect interview that uh, IFG published a few weeks ago. Uh, she said that Yvette Cooper said, actually, you didn't need to go over that. I have to say, I thought Home Office officials should have gone and offered their resignations up over Windrush. I thought that was far more culpable of officials failing actually to grasp that something fundamentally really bad was happening in the system for which they were responsible and not doing enough to uh, to point that out, rectify it. Um, and I actually, I think that's a much worse offence than this, which is incompetent, but it's not uh, not as bad as that. Jill, I very much agree with you. Um, and it's an argument we've been making uh, since then. We're nonetheless going to stay on the case of this one because it is, as Alex was saying, an interesting test case about accountability where something clearly did go wrong. Well, that's it for another week. My great thanks to Giles Wilkes, Alex Thomas, Jill Rutter and Sarah Nixon in Australia. If you enjoy this podcast, do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live, which we've been referring to. We've got brand new recordings there for you, including my discussions with Amber Rudd, the former Climate Change Secretary and Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng from our terrific Net Zero conference this week. And you can rewatch the whole conference, which is on our website. And while you're there, do register for an event which Alex is hosting next week on what the Integrated Review of Security, Defence, Development and Foreign Policy means for the UK. We've been uh, waiting some time to talk about that. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Please do leave us a review. We'll be back next week, and until then, you can find all our work, including Sarah's new quarantine paper that went everywhere at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So summer holidays are off for now, one way or another. You'll need a good podcast to listen to in the months ahead. Like you, Inside Briefing is going nowhere. We'll see you next week.